You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to All Creatures Podcast. Today is a really, really exciting interview. In fact, it's one that I've been thinking about and dreaming about and coordinating for a while now because I've been wanting to talk about corals. They're such an important animal. And today I get to sit down and talk with Dan Birdno, who is a restoration program coordinator from the Coral Restoration Foundation. And he'll be talking about the foundation throughout the podcast. But CRF is one of the world's largest nonprofit marine conservation organizations, which is dedicated to restoring coral reefs to a healthy state. They're located in Florida, but they also work internationally. And it's just an amazing, amazing nonprofit. And I just can't wait for Dan to tell us all about what they do and how they're doing it and to learn a lot more about corals today. So hello, Dan. Thank you for joining me. Of course. Hello. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's an it's absolute pleasure to, to be on here and to talk about the, some of the work that CRF is doing. Yeah. Well, and it's I'm so happy, too, to be talking to you because as Chris and I kind of bumble through corals, uh, we have found out that we're definitely not invertebrate specialists. We, we, we work with uh, the macro vertebrates, and so it's definitely a little bit out of our comfort zone. And you being a scientist and a program coordinator, it's just going to be lovely to hear all the ins and outs of what you guys are doing. So we're in a lot of fun today. And before we dive into all the meat and bones of what CRF does and how they're saving corals, can you give me a little background about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so maybe just start with a little bit of my education. Um, you know, like I said, studied marine science, specifically marine biology, um, and I was always kind of interested in that in a pretty young age. Um, via my family, via you know, I grew up on the water in New England. Um, Nice. So basically, are, oh, are you a Patriots fan? I am. I kind of have to be. Yeah, <laughs> it's no, hard my, not to be. I know my husband grew up in Boston, so well, and yeah. and now I'm I'm a Tampa Bay Bucks fan, so go right. Tom Brady. <laughs> I I know we talked about going to a game. That, well, I don't know about this fall, but sometime, yeah, sometime. So. Yeah, I have to make it up there. Well, New England is beautiful. I mean, my goodness, it's 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 a great place to grow up by the water. Yeah. There, so so I grew up going to the New England Aquarium. Um, you know that was kind of where I first got introduced to, to marine science and, and to the ocean. Um, my dad has always been a, a sailor, a boater, um, and a scuba diver, which is, is how I got involved in diving. But even before that, um, I was obsessed with penguins, the, the awesome. little blue penguins that they have aquarium. And that was, I, I don't know why, just something about them. They're super cool, super cute. Yeah, um, and that was kind waddle. of my childhood obsession. Yeah, the little waddle, all of it. <laughs> Um, and that got me, you know, more focused towards marine science. Um, and then I, I had a teacher in high school who I contribute, I mean, my career to. She was incredible, Miss um, Rosen. She really drove me to want to study marine science um, and, and to want to explore that as a career option and then kind of hit the ground running at college. And, and now I'm here. So. 
Wow. We have to big shout out. Miss Rosen was her name? Yes. Awesome. South High School. (laughs) Cool. Yeah. No, it's so amazing when teachers can have such an impact and and really, really make a difference and help shape a student. I know that I have several. Mine were more actually in college and then in graduate school. But yeah, it's it's really great to connect and then be able to follow your dream because I know there's a lot of kids out there that are say they want to become a marine biologist, but then either later on in life they find out that it's hard to get into, or it's, you know, it's, it's not all necessarily, uh, rainbows and butterflies of, <laughs> of, <laughs> of looking at dolphins or penguins all day. Right? Not quite. Just, yeah. There's probably some, there's some get, nitty gritty. Yeah. Get dirty. Yes. Yes. But, and how, as you were growing up and watching the penguins and going to the aquarium and hanging out on the beach, did you have like a favorite, story about a marine animal or about diving that was also like the aha moment of like, okay, I'm going to spend my life doing this? Yeah, um, that's a good question. There's a couple. Definitely growing up, um, the aquarium is famous for their harbor seal exhibit, which is actually outside the aquarium. So you don't even have to pay for a ticket to see part of the exhibit. But then they also have a, a, a rescue program and they have like, the, they had this whole show Put on using rescue animals and so that was really my first like oh this is like really cool the trainers and then all, everything they're doing but then there's also the the rescue side of it um and the more like researchy side it's not just an exhibit um that was probably the first just because they've always had that exhibit at the new England aquarium um and then in terms of a diving moment i think one of the ones that really stuck with me um, is the first time I saw a Graysby grouper, which is a, a pretty small um, species of grouper, out on the reef, and they actually hunt symbiotically with a species of moray eel. So the moray eel will will swim along in tandem with the grouper and then dive down to a hole and basically, pun intended, fish out any fish that are living down in the reef. And the Graysby will be waiting right at the top of the hole to, to catch it and eat it. And then they'll share the scraps. Um, and so just seeing these two, and I'd seen it talked about on Blue Planet or Planet Earth. You know, I can't remember which one. But actually being in the water and seeing it and then just that kind of like, that was the moment where like, this is it. This is happening. I'm living this. This is real. I just saw that happen. Um, didn't have my camera with me, unfortunately. But that's how it goes. Oh, yeah, but it's in your memory. And sometimes I think that's mm-hmm. almost more important than us with all of our iPhones snapping a million pictures. <laughs> I saw I like, it and no one can tell me I didn't. Exactly. And got excited about it and then wanted yeah. to learn more. And so, yeah, well, and now Dan, too, also in our lifetime, as we've grown up, because um, I, I grew up in Lake Michigan, and then, of course, later on in life, moved to Florida. But We've definitely seen some changes to our big bodies of water and even our local streams as far as pollution and, and the plastic crisis and then, and of course, uh, global climate change. So can you talk a little bit about how that's impacted the oceans from your point of view growing up on them and studying them now and then even more specifically with corals? Like, how bad is it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's definitely an important question to address um, and, and kind of one that, that's in the back of all of our minds as coral scientists, everyone at CRF, everyone um, within the field of restoration. Global climate change is the single greatest threat to coral reefs in the next 50 to 100 years. Um, 
via a couple of different mechanisms. The primary one people are probably familiar with is coral bleaching, um, and that's due to increasing ocean temperatures, leading to the coral expelling their symbiotic species of algae that they live with. Um, and so this algae that's within the coral photosynthesizes via the sun's light and provides essentially energy um, for the corals to use and to grow and to put down the skeleton, which is the actual reef substrate that they form. And so when they expel that algae, they lose a significant portion of their food source, of their energy reserves, um, as well as it just being a, a stress reaction. Think of it kind of like when we get a fever um, from a cold or the flu or, or whatever. And so if they expel that algae for a long enough period, the coral's not able to survive and, and will perish. I mean, so that's the big, big sort of driver behind um, coral destruction via global climate change. But then there's also things like ocean acidification, which not only affects corals and the actual calcium carbonate skeleton that they lay down, it requires a very um, specific pH relationship and, and, and pH solution for them to be able to secrete the calcium carbonate. But it also has effects on everything in the ocean, from fish larvae to coral larvae. Um, and so it's a much bigger thing than just coral bleaching. And so that's kind of why it's considered the single greatest threat. Um, and it's something that, you know, a as a world, as a globe, it, it requires action from every, every country, but it also requires action from every individual. And so it's uh, just an issue that encompasses pretty much anyone who could think um, about wanting to conserve the ocean and, you know, wanting to preserve our environment. The, the big thing that we're facing is an extinction of coral reefs. And we've never seen a loss of an entire ecosystem before. And so we really don't know what will happen if we lose the coral reefs um, and, and the interconnectivity that they have with the rest of the ocean and how that might affect climate cycles, how it might affect weather cycles, how it might affect fish populations. Um, and so it's something that that's just always kind of in everyone's mind. At CRF, you know, we, to address that, one of our big core driving principles is diversity, maintaining and even preserving, promoting genetic diversity on the reef, specifically for us with coral, with coral species. Um, the more different genotypes of corals we have, the more likely some of those genotypes will be resistant to increasing temperatures or increasing storm events um, or disease events. And so it's trying to spread all of our eggs into as many different baskets as possible. Well, yeah, Dan, it really hit home to me this past week when I was researching corals, when it, when coral reefs were described as like the rainforest mm -hmm. of the ocean. And correct me if I'm wrong, but there's something like 25% of ocean diversity in coral reefs as yep, far so as the different yeah, 25% of yeah. all life in the ocean can be drawn at some stage of their life um, history to the reef, whether it's juvenile nurseries or the adults, um, whether it's the, the lobsters that people love down here in Florida, um, everything to the, the sponges and the corals that make up the reef. Yeah, and so for listeners out there that maybe aren't on the coral reef train or are still kind of wondering, well, well why, why should we care about corals? How can you help get the average person excited about 
coral reefs and their importance besides just, of course, the diversity and the, the unknown fears of what happens if they are gone? Yeah, of course. Um, so a big sort of statistic to throw out there, um, aside from the, the 25% of all life in the ocean, the oceans provide about 70% of all the oxygen that we breathe. Now, not all of that is coming from the coral reefs, um, but like I said, all of these environments in the ocean are very, very much connected. And so things that are happening on the reef have effects for things that happen um, in the open ocean with, with fish populations, with algae populations, which is where that oxygen comes from. Um, and so you have this whole big ocean cycle, essentially, that you know are, things are playing off each other and cause and effect relationships. Um, and so... To lose that coral reef ecosystem, we would potentially lose, you know, some of the rest of the services from the ocean. Um, on top of that, coral reefs provide very, very um, beneficial, what we call ecosystem services. And that's kind of a, a term that's been coined by the, the coral restoration field um, or just coral ecology field. And some of those major ones that the reefs provide um, are shoreline protection from wave events and storms, such as hurricanes that we have down here. So basically, the coral acts as a frontline barrier, a frontline buffer for this wave energy before it comes in and can hit the shore and start eroding things. Um, and that has actual tie-ins to, to mangrove habitat as well and, and protecting that. Um, and so the specifically the branching corals, the staghorn and elkhorn that we worked with down here in the Keys, that was their main ecological function, is they live at the top of the reef crest, um, at the fore reef, and they're, they're made to kind of fragment and break and branch, roll around and reattach and form these really interlocked thickets that do exactly that and stop in wave action. Um, we also touched briefly on the, the reefs providing juvenile habitat. So they provide nursery habitat for lots of juvenile species of fish that actually grow up to be oceanic. Um, and stemming off that, a lot of those species are, are fish that we eat, that we use as a source of nutrition. Um, a lot of coastal communities, I think it's something like over 1 billion people get the majority of their protein from seafood. Um, wow, yeah. Well, that's globally, obviously. Yeah, um, but that's a very, very important source of, of protein for a lot of communities. But then also there's medical uses. Um, and this is very, very current ongoing research, more so with some of the organisms that are associated with coral reefs, such as sponges, um, and then even some of the corals as well. People are looking at um, different chemicals and different, some of the um, allelopathy that these animals have and how that can benefit human medicine. Um, and so there's some really groundbreaking, like I said, very current research ongoing there. And if we lose these species, you know, we, we might lose something that we never knew was beneficial to us, but could have been groundbreaking. Yeah. Um, and then kind of finally, the last one is, is the tourism and recreation, um, which leads into the, the massive economic value that coral reefs provide, not only for the U.S., um, specifically Florida, but around the world. Um, and whether that's diving scuba diving whether you're just a recreational fisherman whether you're just taking your family out to the beach um you know that sand came from the, the coral skeleton that a fish ate and pooped out your sand that you're stepping on yeah there's a funny song from uh, one of the cartoons that my kids watch when of course they always watch <laughs> like uh you know ant octonauts or mm -hmm. or uh, might this might be uh what is it 
one of the fish ones, but it's, uh, I want to thank you. It's, it's, they're singing to the parrotfish and they're like, okay. I, I want to thank you for pooping out sandy beaches. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. It is. So whenever we're at the beach, my kids sing this. And of course, they're too young to snorkel or dive at this point in time. But we always thank the parrotfish and the coral reefs for pooping out sandy beaches. Yep. So. <laughs> That's funny. Sorry That's about great. my singing there. It's just if I can throw that in, I have. No, it's, it was great. I love it. Yeah, I hope people remember that, right? That's all about uh, remembering and caring about yeah, coral yeah. reefs. Yeah. And now, Dan, all jokes and songs aside, uh, you're studying marine biology and going to school. How did you come to work for uh, the Coral Restoration Foundation? Yeah. Um, so I was in my undergrad program at Eckerd College, which is in St. Petersburg, Florida. So the other side, Gulf Coast. Um, and we actually took a spring break trip down here with um, our scuba club at the time, which was run by the Eckerd rabbi, um, Rabbi Ed Rosenthal, who, again, is someone I credit a lot for, for where I am today. Um, he basically took it upon himself to form this scuba club um, at Eckerd because no one else really would. Um, and his whole thing was scuba and service. And then there's a there's a Jewish word for it, and I'm not even going to try and, and pronounce it. I would <laughs> yeah. butcher it. Um, Fair enough. That's ju- the story of my do life, Do him my disjustice. Yeah. yeah. So there's a Jewish word for it. Um, it. Basically, it's all about giving back to the community and service. And he mm-hmm. translated that to diving. Awesome. And so one of our first trips we did was to come down here for a week and we volunteered with Ken Niedemeyer and CRF, and I believe this was 2011. And so very different CRF from where I'm at now, just in terms of, I mean, it was three staff members, Ken being one of them, um, running out of a dive shop to now where we have 15 to 20 staff members, 15 to 20 interns, three of our own boats. Um, so really cool to see CRF grow. But that was basically that trip is what got me excited about corals. Um, in undergrad, I was more of a shark man um, okay. and penguins, but yes. there was some, I'm colorblind, so I can't study penguins. It's a, it's a long story. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. But that's what really got me focused on corals and, and really kind of, um, I guess, honed in what I wanted to study and, and I wanted, what I wanted to, to further my education in was that trip. Um, and just coming down and seeing that you can dive and work, but also be conserving the environment and, and working to restore the reef track. Um, the Keys is somewhere where me and my dad have always kind of gone diving. And so to come and be able to help um, be a part of that and restore it, it really means a lot to me. So, Yeah. Well, I'm sure the corals thank your colorblindness that now you get to help them out. And it is always so interesting with field research. I remember doing an internship uh, studying primate species and watching their behavior and realizing after doing that for a whole summer that it's hard for me to stand still with looking up high into the trees Mm -hmm. for hours at a time and that maybe that wasn't the best route for me. And so I went on to obviously explore other things. And so it's a lot of those experiences as you grow, you change and evolve and uh, usually find the right fit for your skill sets and your passion and all that. And so I always encourage students to just, just get out there and do things and that'll help guide you on what you like yeah, best yeah. or what works Get out and you. try, try things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, I know my career has been a ton of trial and error and that's okay. That's, you know, that's great. That's how you learn. But, and so 
Can you give our listeners a little background about the missions and goals of the Coral Restoration Foundation as they've grown throughout the years? Yeah, of course. Um, so like I said, you know, we've grown considerably since the foundation in 2007. Um, sort of to go back to the beginning, Ken Niedemeyer founded CRF. Um, basically, he had staghorn corals settle out on his, um, what is his live rock farm, which he used to sell for Aquaria business. And realized that he could asexually reproduce them via this sort of natural fragmentation process that um, this species in particular was was really heavily reliant on. And rather than sell those those re- asexually reproduced fragments as a as part of a business, he decided I've been in you know why not conserve the keys? Why not use these corals to help restore the reef? Um, and that's really where the whole coral restoration. Um, in the Keys and where CRF was founded and the principles it's founded on. Um, today, you know, our core mission is to restore the coral reefs, but also to educate others on the importance of the oceans and the coral reefs. And then also to use our science program to further coral restoration research, um, as well as coral monitoring techniques, which is a big part of what we do. Um, and so, like I said, through this natural fragmentation process, we're, we're trying to, working to support the reef's natural recovery. And so we realize we're never going to be able to outplant as much coral to, to reach the historic baseline levels that they used to be. But we realize that we can plant enough corals to kickstart the natural recovery, to kind of almost like jumpstart, like jump in a car. We're, we're providing enough juice into the system, enough coral tissue, enough genetic diversity uh, that we hope that the corals can um, overcome some of their stressors and actually start to naturally recover via settlement, as well as this storm fragmentation and such. And now, Dan, I can't wait to dive into the actual restoration process of how you do that, because it's just it's so fascinating to me. But for myself and for our listeners, would you mind giving a little brief description about corals in general uh, as animals, how they reproduce, how they grow, how they survive um, in, in a way that people like myself that uh, <laughs> study vertebrates can understand it. Absolutely. Um, so the coral is an animal, which actually a lot of people don't know. Um, right. It's, it's pretty surprising, but yeah. Yeah, um, I know. I didn't know that when I started off. I kind of always just thought it was a, a plant. It, it, it mm-hmm. looks kind of like a plant if it talks like a plant. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Etc. Um, doesn't doesn't move it, much like a plant. Yeah, yeah, it's sessile. <laughs> um, basically, the coral itself is made up of a colonial animal, um, and each coral is made up of. Um, and th- there are some corals that are are singular, um, but in in terms of the ones we're talking about. There's a colonial animal made up of a bunch of polyps. And so hard coral, which is hexacoral, is made up of radials of six polyps. So six, 12, 18. And that's a good way to ID them if you can get a magnifying glass and get down in there. Um, But basically that whole colony is made up of anywhere from hundreds to thousands of these polyps. And they all share tissue for the majority of species, um, they all share nutrients. Um, the coral can heterotrophically feed via its polyps. So almost like um, a jellyfish, they're in the same family. And so they can extend their polyps outside of their skeleton and actually catch particles in the water to feed. 
and then retract in and, and bring that food in. But then the main um, sort of source of nutrition, like we talked about, is the coral's symbiotic relationship with zooxanthellae, which is a species of dinoflagellate algae. And so the coral, the thin coral tissue that's connecting all of these different polyps together, basically houses these, these cells of algae um, or these, these cultures of algae within its tissue. And so when the algae receives sunlight, it photosynthesizes like a, a normal plant would, produces um, a, a carbohydrate energy source that is then um, given to the coral essentially to help provide energy. And in return, the coral gives the algae a, a nice, cozy, comfortable home on the reef. And so, um, it, you know, I kind of like to think about it, especially for staghorn, when you have a, a big sort of finger of coral, it's like a little apartment building with everyone kind of paying rent together, essentially, cool, which like, doesn't yeah. happen in real life. No, But, sure. you know, every every little polyp is everyone's apartment with a balcony and, and you come out and wave and that's the polyp. Um, and so it's the whole building working together to to grow the colony. Um, and so for coral growth, and, it, and it's pretty different, varies by species to species, but the general principle for hexacorals, for these hard corals, what we call sclerotinia, which are reef-building corals, um, they lay down sort of underneath their um, tissue layer, they start secreting calcium carbonate. So they pull calcium out of the water, it undergoes a, a slight chemical reaction, um, and then they actually secrete this as a skeletal matrix. And every species, this is something that's really fascinating to me, Every oh, species has I've a different I've been trying matrix. to study it this past week, and it's like mind-blowing. <laughs> so I'm so glad you're here explaining it to me. It's like I almost need to see it in action. It's just – it's out of this world. And just it to, is, yeah. Just to say when, why, we, why we need to save these guys is because it's so incredible. There's definitely something biomedical or mm -hmm. uh, engineering that we can learn from them in order to help humans without a doubt. There has to be. Yeah, especially like bioengineering, like you yes. said. Yeah, uh, crazy. Just the, the things that this coral could do without a a brain, quote unquote, yeah. uh, and that, that they've just developed evolutionarily is is just fascinating. Okay, but sorry I interrupted. So they, they lay down the car calcium carbonate. Yep. So they basically secrete a skeleton. Um, and, you know, given the, the growth morphology of the coral, it's done in a little different manner, but... That skeleton is what forms the reef substrate. That is the calcium carbonate um, that, that Florida is made up of because it used to be one big reef, you know, when the sea level was much higher. And so the coral is, these sclerotinian corals, these hexacorals, are the main reef building species, main reef building family for the reefs. Um, and so without them, you don't have you don't have any structure for any of this habitat or species to live in in a form, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, you've got corals that secrete sort of mounds, bouldering corals, mounding corals, more branching, which is the acroporid corals. Um, so all these different morphologies and forms. And a lot of that is dictated on where on the reef they live in. Like I said, the fore reef up on top to stop the wave energy, they're going to be more branching and interlocking deeper down on, on the, on, um, off the reef crest and more such, you get the bigger sort of bouldering mounding corals that provide really hard stability for the whole reef. And Dan, for the colony of polyps, are those the same genotype? 
Yeah, that's actually a really good question. Um, and I, I, I should have even said it. So each colony is monogenetic. They're actually clones of each other. So it's like an apartment building with a bunch of Dan's. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All cloned, all working together, all, all doing, getting really productive, doing a lot of work. Um, I feel like if there were clones of Angie, we would be able to get a lot of um, amazing things done. You know, Absolutely. more so than if I'm just in a group with uh, other people. I, you know, I, I, I sometimes have the problem of where I'm like, oh, I'll just do it myself because it'll be better. <laughs> so. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's a that's actually a phenomenal question. Um, they are all individual colonies are all monogenetic clones of each other, um, and so to play off that, you know, CRF takes genetic diversity really seriously, and so even within our our nursery, which is out in the open water in C2, we call it right off of Tavernier Key in Florida. Um, we have monogenetic trees. And so we can grow about 60 corals on each tree, but we try and keep those um, basically all the same genotype on each tree. So that eliminates any potential competition, negative effects from you know your neighbors not liking each other. Um, and then basically every coral on that tree is a clone, an asexual reproductive fragment of each other. Um, and that way we know for our documentation and for outplanning purposes, for reporting on all of that, um, we know we have a very clear chain of genotypes, essentially. Well, yes, Dan, I'm definitely ready to hear the meat and bones of what Coral Restoration Foundation does to restore corals. So can you walk us through the restoration process of coral propagation, uh, coral tree nurseries, outplanting, and which parts done in the lab, which parts done in the in the in the open water, and maybe describe a little bit once again about their spawning or reproduction. Um, yes, absolutely. So CRF has a I guess a three step process when you want to break it down very simply. Um, the first step being collection. So when Ken Niedemeyer first founded CRF, we went out on top of the corals he had settling on his his own structures. We were also given permission via the sanctuary and via the government, NOAA, to go out and collect from wild colonies. And so essentially you go out and collect um, the tips. So just, uh, you know, a finger length, maybe a few finger lengths of, of a coral colony. Um, and this has been shown to have no detrimental effects on the wild colony. Multiple labs, multiple people have, have shown this. Um, and so essentially you're not harming your wild colony, but you're collecting more genetic tissue for your nursery. And so once you've got that collection and you have these little small fragments, you can start to propagate them asexually. Um, you can start to grow them in your nursery, whether that's in C2 or XC2 in a lab. Um, CRF is, I don't wanna say unique, but one of our whole driving principles is that pretty much everything we do is in situ in the ocean. Um, we don't have the capacity for a land-based facility. We don't have the we don't have the facility for it. Um, and so we tr everything we're trying to develop, every technique, every new methodology, we want to try and make sure that all of it can be done with simple tools out on a boat or out underwater. Um, and this makes it incredibly transferable to our other international programs. And so you've got your coral fragment from collection, and now you're going to either hang it in the nursery, which is what we do. Um, CRF developed, and, and Ken Niedemeyer, his baby, developed what we term a coral tree. Um, and it can be made from PVC, fiberglass, 
Um, some people even use metal, uh, rebar, but essentially you're suspending these corals in the water column at a certain depth. Um, and that allows them to photosynthesize and feed via the algae, but it also allows them to, like I described earlier, heterotrophically feed in the water column. So they're getting nutrients from multiple, multiple sources. They're getting a lot of nutrients, which means they're growing really, really well and they're healthy. The polyps are out. We call them, they're, they look furry almost. Um, they're not, but they yeah, look a little yeah, furry. Cute. A furry coral is a happy coral. Um, and so they're, they're growing really well when they're suspended. Um, that allows us to, to move them up and down as well on a different size line. So if the water temperature changes or we have a thermocline, we can lower the trees. Um, and that's to minimize any potential effects of uh, global climate change, essentially, or ocean warming. And now, Dan, when they're on the coral trees and they're growing, you mentioned they're doing this asexually. And so are they use budding or fragmenting? Or can you explain that process a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So what we're actually doing um, as, as practitioners is, is asexually propagating them. Uh, we are fragmenting them. So we're mimicking this natural breakage that occurs during storms or physical damage, a diver, an anchor, etc. Um, we're mimicking that via a very simple pair of pliers, cutters. Um, and essentially, when you when you break them, um, kind of like you're pruning a rosebush, it stimulates mm -hmm. growth. Oh, and yeah. So we'll, we'll take these, you know, you have your wild collections and you let that fragment grow from a finger size to a basketball size. And maybe that takes six months or a year, depends on the genotype. And then we'll take that basketball and start fragmenting it. And we now have 30 of the same size fragments we started with. Wow, and cool. imagine that exponentially start building our coral stock, yeah. um, which is one of the reasons I mentioned we have these monogenetic trees because very quickly we're producing lots and lots and lots of fragments. And so we want to make sure that we know what genotype we're working on, which tree it goes on, um, if we need to add another tree of it, et cetera. And so once you've got your stock kind of growing, you can then have a, um, you know, what we do is we essentially keep some of the stock in the nursery to have this sustainable growing asexually produced corals. Um, and then the rest of this, whatever excess stock we have is then basically ready to outplant. It's reef ready, um, ready to put on the, the reef. And the way we do that is, is very simple. We have a two-part marine epoxy, just A and B, basically mix it together and it's kind of like wet clay, hardens in about 45 minutes. And so basically you're essentially gluing these large coral fragments down onto the reef. We clear a little bit of reef spot to have a really nice solid glue point. Um, for staghorn, we do three glue points. For elkhorn, just one. And that's based on the different morphology. Um, but essentially we're, we're gluing these corals down in in what we what CRF is termed as clusters. And so it's not just one fragment, it's anywhere from 10 fragments to 50 fragments of one genotype, all in a, in a concentrated area. The idea being when those corals grow, because they're the same genotype, they grow together. They fuse is what we call it. And they form, a, they form habitat, they form thickets. Um, you know, the, the more they fuse together, the healthier they are, the more the resilient they are to predation and disease. Um, and so we're really trying to blanket our reef sites with these little clusters that will hopefully grow together. That is so incredible. 
Uh, and now when you do the outplanting, where are some of your restoration sites and how many reef ready corals have you guys outplanted so far? Yep. So CRF works all the way throughout the Keys pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're just starting to, to dip our toes, pun intended, I love into, it. into Broward as well, working okay. with Nova and the university up there. Um, most of our primary work is, is off of Key Largo. Um, a really big one, and, and it's termed our demonstration site, is Carriage Fort Reef, one of the iconic lighthouses. It has a lot of historical data. Mm-hmm. on what used to be there, pictures of what it used to look like um, from a gentleman, Phil Dustin, very famous pictures, uh, picture series, actually. And so that's one that we put a lot of effort into, um, as well as um, Pickles Reef, North Dry Rocks. But then we go all the way down to iconic reefs in the Keys, like Lou Key, which is another, another famous site. Um, Sombrero, which is another big iconic lighthouse that's still there all the way down to, to Key West and Marker 32, as well as Eastern Dry Rocks. Um, and so we really try and, like I said, uh, like I said earlier, we're trying to provide these little pockets of coral colonies that will help naturally kickstart um, sexual reproduction and, and natural recovery on the reef. And so we really want to make sure that we have a wide coverage of the keys. Um, studies have shown that the whole coral population within the Keys is interconnected. There's no barriers. There's no um, change in genetic makeup, essentially. And so Mm -hmm. we want to make sure that we're covering this whole ecological um, ecosystem, I guess. Yeah. Well, and and speaking on that, once you have outplanted the corals, and like you said, you want to make sure that they kind of take on their natural life cycle and move into sexual reproduction how are these sites monitored and, and what, what are their survivorships look like? Do you have like underwater zookeepers that check on them and measure them and stuff? Um, sort of. Yeah, actually. <laughs> uh, that's a good way to put it. Uh, a, a big focus of CRF's science program led by Amelia, our science program manager, um, is our monitoring program. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a, a there's kind of two ways that we go about that. And, and one of them we're, we're really actively developing right now. So I'm, I'm really excited to talk about it in just a yeah. second. Okay. Um, I'll start with the first one, which is um, pretty, pretty basic in-water monitoring of corals. Like you said, go down with a clipboard and a data sheet and a ruler. And you know we're measuring a subset of the corals. We can't measure every coral, um, but measuring a subset of them. And then we're actually taking survivorship data for all of the corals. So percent tissue mortality, if there's any noticeable predation. Um, we have two different species of predators for the corals, actually, unfortunately. But that's that's nature. That's the wild. That's the cycle of life, yeah. Yep. Um, and so they're going down, and, and in buddy pairs, just two divers, they're taking pictures. So we have a, a photo record um, of you know when we outplanted it, but then also one month monitoring and one year. So we have the two different time points that we try to hit for this like really uh, it's basically fate tracking each coral is what is what it's called. Um, You know, you're actually going and looking at each coral that was planted or at least each cluster that was planted and doing a general health assessment um, of that. The second one that that CRF is actually really excited about and is developing is a photo mosaic monitoring protocol. And so essentially having one diver or a boat or a camera rig or whatever, swimming over your outplant site, 
and taking a whole bunch of photographs, top down, um, you're getting a whole bunch and they all overlap. And so then we come back in and we upload those photographs to a program on the computer. I'm not going to pretend I know how it works. <laughs> it does its magic. Um, I love it. Our, our special project coordinator types in some code and it runs its program and it stitches all these photos together and it creates an image that we can zoom in, look at, zoom in and on clusters, zoom out and look at the whole reef. We can theoretically measure things in this. Um, right now we're creating a 2D like ortho mosaic, a, a cool. point cloud basically. Yeah. Images. You can also create 3D images. Um, we've done that with like individual colonies. And so there's a lot of really cool potential to use this, not just for monitoring the corals themselves, but monitoring what's going on on the reef site as a whole. Because ultimately, I mean, that's what we care about. We care about the coral reef ecosystem, not just the coral reef. Right. And so these mosaics allow us to get a much broader picture of, um, of success and, and, you know, even of if it's not succeeding. Um, and Dan, so overall, are they doing well? Are you seeing sexual reproduction from some of your outplanted corals? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. Um, we definitely have seen our corals spawn, which is what is the sexual reproduction um, for the corals, is what it's termed. And they're both corals in our nursery and, and wild outplanted corals. Well, I guess they're not wild, but outplanted corals that have become wild are part of the reef have, have started to spawn. Um, a really big collaboration that Syrup is involved with is actually collecting that spawn oh, and, wow. and, and mixing, fertilizing, sexually producing new genotypes within a lab. And that, you now it's not something we have the capability to do ourselves, but we have the corals and we have the genotypes and the parents. And so we can work with organizations like the Florida Aquarium that are doing this really important work, um, sort of investigating how that, how that mechanism works how we can improve it on the reef in the wild. In terms of overall survivorship, it is very, one, it's very site dependent. Um, you know, some of the reason we chose these sites because they've performed well in the past. And even a few of them we've chosen that we're working on this year because we haven't done much outplanting there and we want to know how corals do in the future. So we kind of pilot outplanting at those sites to see how they hold, to see if they survive. And then we can have a much larger effort if they do. Um, and so it's really trial and error. We have um, really, really amazing survival. The, the thing, you know, we, we got hit pretty bad by Irma, which is something, you know, that we can't prevent at all. Right. <laughs> can kind of predict, yeah. but. Um, so there are things like that that have, had little bumps and blips in our survivorship. Um, and, and at CRF, you know, we know that not every coral is going to survive. Not every cluster is going to survive. Um, there's a whole compounding list of factors. But we know that even, even if 30% of our corals survive, that's still 30% corals that could sexually reproduce. Exactly, um, yeah. And I think after Irma, and I'm, these numbers aren't going to be exact, um, but I think our one month, one year monitoring is is eighty or ninety percent survival. So it's wow, still pretty yeah, high up there. Absolutely. Um, Irma's had a big toll. We're worried this summer. We're actually in a current bleach watch. With it's looking like it's going to turn to a bleach warning, which is the sort of different like zones or warnings that you're in. Um, 
but again, you know, that's something that we have to tackle as it happens um, and just do the best we can. So. Right. And like you said, look, and as you mentioned, helping to create genotypes that potentially do have the resilience to survive mm-hmm. some of these external unwanted events until we can get our acts together and save the ocean, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And now you mentioned that uh, you work with the Florida Aquarium, which I'm a huge fan of. And what are some of your other national and international collaborators? Because we all know in science or in conservation, it is not a one-man effort. It takes a team, right? It's uh, We're in it together. So, Yeah, 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 of course. Um, yeah, absolutely. So CRF works with a lot of different um, partners or, or collaborators, as we call them. A lot of this is through our science program, um, a lot of these being researchers from different universities. Uh, we look at CRF's nursery at our, at our coral stock um, as a resource for these people to use. You know, not everyone has the capacity to grow this much coral, um, has the, the manpower to maintain it and, and to really to keep it healthy. And so they rely on us for the corals, but we rely on these collaborators for best practices, for helping us understand how the coral is behaving, how it's growing, why it's behaving certain ways. Um, and so... I mean, throw some big ones out there. Like I said, we work with flack a lot for not only for spawning and, and coral sexual reproduction, but also for um, the, the production of diadema, which is a species of urchin that helps basically degraze the reef of algae, which leaves space for corals. And so there's a very symbiotic, not the right word, but a, a mutual relationship there. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if we were restoring corals, we should also be restoring these other species that help the corals yes, survive sure. and thrive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a big one. Work a lot with the Georgia Aquarium as well, um, just in terms of them coming down with their volunteer team and, and providing divers and manpower. Um, they're involved in spawning as well. We do a lot of work with um, a professor at the University of Alberta and her graduate students, and they're actually studying fish so she's a a fish ecology lab um and this again plays into the whole interconnectivity of stuff is we don't have the bandwidth to measure fish populations at our restoration sites in our nursery um you know that's something that we just we don't have the capacity to tackle but we really want to see that information and we want to know what that data says and, and what it says about our planting and if we should change anything and so working with these people um allows us to get that information. And so what they're actually doing is, is fish studies at our reef sites to determine if, if it's changing, if we're getting more fish, abundance, different kinds of fish, etc. Um, oh. Internationally, CRF works with a couple different partners, and a lot of that is just providing the resources, whether it's trees um, or you know material, to white papers and such, so to providing methodologies and protocols, um, whether that's, you know, how to best handle your data to have a nice, clear chain of command, or whether it's how do we facilitate our volunteers, because that can be kind of tricky sometimes with liability and um, all the legal legalese matters and stuff. Sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then a big one that, that CRF has been a part of in the last two or three years is the Coral Restoration Consortium, the CRC. Um, our CEO, Scott Winters, is a co-chair of the CRC, along with Tom Moore, who leads the restoration um, department in NOAA, in the government. So 
basically the, the, the CRC is attempting to bring together practitioners from all around the world um, within varying fields, whether it's monitoring actual restoration practitioners to, to more hard sort of coral ecology scientists who are studying the sexual reproduction and, and larval connectivity and all of that, um, and getting everyone together in what they call working groups. And so the CRC has a bunch of different working groups, um, whether it's larval propagation, monitoring, like I just said. Um, and essentially, they're all meeting and discussing and talking to formulate sort of started with formulating priorities. Where do we need to be focusing efforts? What are, where are our lack of information? Um, does someone already know this who we might be able to be in contact with, et cetera? And even more now so to forming best practices. They're coming out with a, essentially like a restoration guideline. Um, and that, you know, how many genotypes should you have? How should you plant the corals? And that depends on where you're planting the corals and, and the habitat you're planting them in. Um, what coral species should be planted? And so really, a, a whole overarching um, set of not just research, but of, of practitioners and people and, and even engineers. Um, there's ad hoc groups that are sort of working to develop new oh, practices, awesome. new structures, yeah. um, all the way to what they had was called ReFutures, which is the first scientific conference devoted to coral restoration. Um, and right we actually on. helped host that awesome. in the Keys. That was phenomenal. You know, just as a coral scientist, something that you always want to be a part of. So it was just amazing to to be at CRF while that was going on. There's yeah. one coming up in 2021. Um, but basically, the whole point of the CRC is um, to to share information, to share best practices, to understand what everyone else is doing, um, and to make sure that. Um, everything that all these practitioners are doing is, is in accordance with the latest science, then also, um, you know, is working. Well, yeah, Dan, I just think it's really important because coral conservation is in such critical need of action now. And you don't want your international collaborators to be reinventing the wheel if you already know something or, I mean, sharing information is going to be the key to getting things done quicker and better. And it's just so great that your organization is moving moving that part forward, right? And uh, and as you said, from a coral scientist point of view, it's exciting to get to hear other people speak and understand these working groups. And yeah, once again, not reinvent the wheel because it's just, just not enough time to do that. So I- Yeah, and especially as a, as a young coral scientist, um, just the the sheer amount of, of networking opportunities and just people that you're put in touch with who I had like my idols, you know, different yeah. professors or people I've seen on a paper and oh, right. I just wish I could meet that person. And yeah. now, you know, this allows to have those opportunities. So it's awesome. Really cool. Yes. No, being, being around coral rock stars has got to be amazing. <laughs> yes. I know in my own disciplines, I have, I have my own behaviorist rock stars and physiology people where I'm like, I can't believe I'm talking to them right now. So <laughs> yeah. you really and, nerd out on some of that. <laughs> oh my gosh. You can totally nerd out. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but you mentioned that one of the big and growing missions of CRF is to educate, to work with schools and the public to also promote coral and reef conservation practices. Can you touch on that a little bit for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so 
the one of the three pillars of CRF being our restoration program, science program, and then the third one is our education program. Um, and it's really important to us that we get the youth involved, we get the public involved, um, you know, via public schools and such. And that that's you know, our education program manager comes from a, a teacher background, and um, I think he does an amazing job at really driving that home that. If we want real lasting change, um, we need to involve the students and the kids. And if they get involved, their parents will get involved. Um, and so a really big focus of his work since coming in has been getting into um, schools. And this isn't just Florida. This is this is nationally um, and even awesome. potentially internationally. Mm-hmm. So whether it's a Skype um, presentation or a, a workshop or... You know, we actually send some of our interns to schools in Florida, which is really awesome. Um, Obviously, with COVID, that's kind of been put on hold. But Mm -hmm. that's where the whole virtual thing comes into play. And it's really cool has been allowed us to continue that. But then even sort of past that is he has developed workshops that CRF can provide for teachers, which is really relevant now trying to come up with stuff to to give out at home essentially. Um, yeah, for sure. And so he's developed and um, put them on our website for dissemination. All these different workshops, you know, there's one about coral slime, there's one about coral reproduction. Um, and so very basic principles and they all have a activity. You get your hands dirty. That's cause that's important. Um, associated with them that helps teach the lesson. And so I think that part of it is really, really cool because even if you're homeschooling your kids, you can take these lessons um, and, and have a sort of activity workshop and get it done. Um, and then his whole, his big thing is Captain Coral. So he cool. is Captain Coral. It's a pirate themed coral. Um, I think he calls them edutainment, education, entertainment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was blown away when I first saw um, him present this. So he gets up on stage and is, I mean, it's a whole act. And you're like, where was this when I was growing up? Right. (laughs) I know. Yeah. I would have, I would have eaten it up. Yeah. Um, And he's, he cracks jokes for the parents. So he's, he covers everyone, every audience. um, And it's just phenomenal. Um, You know, he does those at schools again and at at various places. I also think there's some recorded ones that are available, Um, but just, you know, really important um that crf stresses or attempts to to reach out to as many people as possible um yeah oh dan i'm a i'm a huge believer on the next generation they're they're the ones that are going to help save us and get us out of the mess that uh, we're in right now and absolutely just like your teacher inspired you i mean the more the youth has that or the public you don't have to be young to be inspired about corals and want to work to save them. But the more that information is available, the more we can inspire people and help drive change. And so that's that's awesome. We'll have to put some of those uh, links on our show notes too so yeah. our listeners and, and can I ac- think access them. Especially in today's day and age, um, you know, not everyone has access to the ocean. Correct. Not everyone yeah. has access to a coral reef, but everyone has access to to images, to, to now virtual dives and to Google Catlin survey stuff. And, and all of this, this, there's this huge amount of resources that just need to be um, disseminated, mm-hmm. consolidated in the right places um, that people have access now in the digital age that 
can really convey what it means to be on a coral reef or what it means, you know, the importance of coral reefs without ever actually being there. Yeah, no, it's, it's, and that's, and that is the beauty of the time we live in where Mm -hmm. you can have this access to information or characters like Captain Coral that you and I growing up (laughs) probably didn't have. So, uh, and now for students or people that do have a lot of interest in corals, you mentioned internships and volunteer opportunities at CRF. Can you briefly describe some of those? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we have a very rigorous um, intern program and volunteer program, actually. So I'll I'll start with the volunteer program. Um, It has definitely been hindered by Corona, um, COVID, and quarantines out of necessity, out of everyone's, for everyone's safety, etc. Um, and the volunteer program can kind of be broken down into two different means, um, even three different means of volunteering. And this is open to anyone in, in the public. You don't have to be dive certified. Um, we have a lot of land-based volunteering. There's a awesome. lot of sort of behind the scenes work that, that happens that um, is really nice to have volunteer help with. Um, you know, we have a couple older volunteers who are, used to be divers, but but can't really dive anymore or don't want to dive off our boats. And so they come in and help on land. Um, you know, and everything from building structures, building those trees I was talking about, to inside helping us actually tag and identify our photographs that we take for outplanning. Um, but basically, you've got your your land volunteers, which is kind of a separate category, and then dive programs, which are run by recreational dive shops. Um, and so we're getting the community involved. You know, we, we're really important, especially with um, COVID and, and a lot of those dive shops taking a hit because they weren't allowed to run boats or anything for good reason. Um, really important to CRF that we're working with organizations in our community. So the, the local dive charters, um, the sanctuaries, all of the above, et cetera. Um, so you come out, go on a dive program. It, it's pretty much like a typical, you know, you would, you would go out and, and do a dive, two dives with a company, but you'll have CRF interns or staff members on the boat with you giving a presentation, um, going through our techniques and methodologies, and then depending on the day and the weather, even outplant a little bit of coral. So it's kind of like a snapshot of the, the restoration program. Um, and then, you know, if, if you did that and you're super, super interested and, you know, you live somewhere close to CRF, you can actually become a, a, a full-time volunteer or um, a working volunteer where you actually come out on our boats with us. Um, and this is where it's sort of some of the liability comes into play. Um, but you come out and, and dive with us. And so you would come out on any typical day that we have. Um, and, you know, we haven't had any of these volunteers via COVID and that's really hurt because we rely on them to, to help us in the water, to outplant corals, to clean the coral trees, um, and all this jazz. And so that obviously takes a little bit more training and mm-hmm. a little bit more time investment on the volunteers sure. part as, as well as CRF side. Um, but we get, I mean, it, it's almost unquantifiable the value that we get from these, these volunteers helping us, um, which like I said, keep stressing that not having them for the last couple of months has really um, had a toll on, on just everything operationally. Yeah, Dan, that's what I wanted to touch on next is how has COVID impacted your organization and, and what does it look like? Where do you go from here? Yeah, so um, we've been lucky that 
what we do is is actually animal husbandry. Um, and so it is essential. Mm-hmm. You know, we were worried we, we wouldn't be able to to have that jurisdiction, I guess. Sure. And, you know, essentially not be able to get out to the nursery at all or not be able to run. Um, and so we were, we have been and we're running very select teams of mm-hmm. divers to, to sort of handle that. Um, people who are comfortable with each other, who have been working with each other already. And I know that, um, you know, not crossing as many um, it's done a lot of words, not crossing as many, um, potential exposures, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Min- um, minimizing the risk. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then of course we've had to develop a very strict sort of decontamination, decontamination protocols for mm-hmm. gear, um, especially if anyone's sharing gear, which ideally not, but, um, a lot of that has slowed down what we've been doing operationally, especially sure. on the water. Mm-hmm. Um, one of our big, big, big hits was actually the cancellation of our gala, mm. which is our annual fundraising event. Um, it's in April every year. And that, you know, really, um, that's an opportunity for us to get the rest of the Keys community involved, as well as sure. people coming from outside. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of non-divers, you know, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So it's a very different crowd that we normally get, um, and so without that gala this year, um, definitely our fundraising has taken a pretty big hit. Um, sort of just the way it's going to go because we we could not have that at all. Um, you know, to have a big in person event would be uh, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but we also throw what we call Coral Palooza every year, which mm-hmm. is a big volunteering event. And that's generally in June, and it you know involves all of the dive shops in the Keys, or at least the majority of them. Um, and there's a, a one or two days where we try and get everyone just doing something. Either you're in the in a building on land, help building stuff, or you're out on the water planting corals. Um, that was canceled as well. But actually, something that came out of that was a virtual coral palooza, um, and this is the first time that we've tried to do anything like that. Um, and I was incredibly impressed, not only with the platform that we found, um, but also with the people at CRF who were behind the scenes, you know, getting all these interviews to, to post and getting all of these organizations to, to share stuff with CRF to be able to put on this. Um, so I encourage anyone to listen to this. It's still live and active. Well, I guess live is not the right word, but still active from our website, coralrestoration.org. Um, go to Coral Palooza 2020. It's a free registration for the event. And it's basically an online um, series of classrooms and videos and, and presentations. Um, and what's really cool is it's not just CRF. A lot of it is what CRF's doing, what we're planning, but a lot of it is from the CRC and what all these other restoration organizations are doing. So if you are interested in core restoration, um, not just CRF. I really highly encourage you to check that out. It's a, just a plethora, a plethora of information. I believe it's up until the end of August. I want to say like August 20th. Um, my mom's checked it out and she was super, because she doesn't know much about coral. Sure, um, and she sure. was just super thrilled. She shows it to her kids because she's a preschool teacher. Oh, I um, love it. Yeah. But, well, yeah. No. So that was really, really cool that came out of came out of COVID and not being able to have these in-person events, but actually mm-hmm. we ended up with this digital resource of information that we would never would have had before. 
Yeah, I do think there are some, definitely some silver linings uh, with COVID yeah. or, or just thinking of thinking outside the box, right, of non-traditional ways to do things or to maybe even fundraise or to help educate that maybe aren't ideal, but in the same instance, they can still be almost as good or perhaps get people involved that maybe wouldn't get involved for like I might not be somebody that's able to travel to a gala, but mm-hmm. I can definitely look up Coral Palooza and we'll and Dan will definitely put that link on our show notes for our listeners so they can enjoy uh, and enjoy learning more about corals in a fun way and also uh, get excited about corals and hopefully help your organization out and um, during these tough times because that's because that's one thing I'm definitely. St- stressing to our listeners and my friends and family and anybody who listen is and now is now is a time to de- to show support to your favorite uh, nonprofits because they're all or zoo or aquarium because uh, they're all mm-hmm. hurting uh, really really bad and at this point and we don't necessarily know when there there will be an end of course when things will be running back to normal or the new normal but we're definitely not there yet and we're probably not going to be there for the next 6 months so uh we'll we'll hopefully help you guys out and get uh, our listeners excited about your organization so they can help you guys out cuz that's the whole goal of this podcast. Well, uh, thank you that's awesome. Yeah, yeah and now with everything that's going on currently here in the US especially what are some of the ways that CRF is committed to fostering diversity and being an inclusive, equitable organization for your staff, but also for volunteers and the public? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really important question. Um, you know, CRF, we've always maintained we're an equal opportunity employer, but that's not even an issue. Um it's really, you know, we've recognized and we do recognize that the field of marine biology um, is very limited. It has hurdles. It has economic hurdles. It has um, sociopolitical sort of, um, another right word, it has um, biases um, and, and sort of these barriers to entry, whether it be getting scuba certified or dive gear or, or having it being, being able to work an unpaid internship, um, which not everyone can afford. And so this is something that CRF is currently actively working on. Um, and so much to the, to the point that we've reached out for outside help um, because we understand that internally looking inside, we aren't going to be able to see these hidden biases. We might recognize some of them, but we're going to miss the majority of them. And so it requires us going outside of our organization and someone looking in and, and, and helping us to eliminate some of these barriers. Um, you know, right off the bat, some of the things that we had um, an intern actually work on, which was really cool, she took it on herself to her project, was what scholarships exist currently and how can those be played into CRF? Um, how can those help future CRF interns or even just anyone looking at that page? You don't have to be associated with CRF. Um, and so a lot of those are diving certification sponsorships or even sponsorships for dive gear. So CRF is currently looking at how can we provide dive gear? Because, um, you know, that is a economic hurdle to a lot of people. Um, and so that's sort of just the start of it. Um, like I said, it's something that, that we're currently seeking help because we realized that um, doing it ourselves, we would never be able to, to address what we wanted. <laughs> 
Absolutely, Dan. I think the more that organizations, whether they're nonprofit or for-profit, the more we ask for resources and and ask for help, or I always tell the public, vote with your dollar and give to, to charities and groups that are working hard to make their organization more equitable because there's tons of hurdles. And then there's a big growth curve for a lot of organizations or, or myself included. And the way that we grow and evolve is through learning and asking questions and seeking out new ways to do things. So I definitely applaud CRF for looking into that and making marine biology and coral restoration um, and just learning about corals uh, more diverse because I come from the zookeeping industry and it's very similar in, as far as we need to improve and learn how we can make it fair and equal and accessible for everyone, uh, especially with the unpaid internships and things like that. So there's going to be ways around it and we just have to help create them and foster them. So awesome for you guys doing that. Uh, and, and one of my other big concerns with the oceans right now is with what's going on with COVID-19, of course, there's so much more PPE, personal protective equipment, masks, gloves, all of that, which are critical, right? I mean, wear them, mask up, all of that. Uh, but there's definitely more of that, uh, more of that PPE going into our waterways. And this month, All Creatures Podcast is uh, participating in Plastic Free July. So we're trying a lot of our, we've created a team and a lot of our listeners, uh, we're all working together to try to help learn more about how to reduce our plastic consumption and footprint. And I just didn't know since you're out on boats and in the ocean, uh, if you have any tips or suggestions for how to help keep our oceans clean for the corals and the reef system uh, as we're kind of going through this pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, like you said, it's really important that we talk about this because there are there is more PPE and single-use masks and gloves and, and all of that. Um, and so, you know, a couple of very basic things is obviously stay away from single-use plastics. So things that you can reuse, whether it's your carry-out food container or a, a cloth fabric mask. Um, you know, obviously you have to glove up sometimes. And so counter that, um, something that I do, and this is leftover from my roommate actually, but he always used to carry a little pouch for cigarette butts. Um, in his car, in his person, he had one everywhere because he was an environmental person, but he was also a cigarette smoker and he didn't want to throw his butts away. And so do the same thing like that, but a, basically a little trash pouch, whether it's in your car, whether it's in your purse, at your office, at your desk. And so you're never just throwing your gloves away somewhere, putting them on the ground or, you know, they're always going into this little bag that you empty out at the end of the day. Um, and that way, you know, you're throwing your trash away. On top of that, um, especially if, you know, your family's going to the beach or you're going out on your boat, bring, um, they're, they're saying this, I'm going to butcher it, but basically take everything that you bring. Sure. Um, and so fill your cooler up with all your cans, um, and, and bring them home and recycle them properly. Um, and so very just a basic kind of human decency, but mm -hmm. you want to make sure that you're leaving somewhere cleaner or as clean as you found it. I think that's pretty big. Um, 
you know, I have a friend who goes running down a long key every morning and he actually brings a trash bag with him because he knows that he's going to find trash. Um, and that's, you know, it's sad, but it's awesome that he's doing that. And if everyone who went running did that, there wouldn't be as much trash. Right. Um, so it's sort of little things like that, but then also, and this is, this is all personal comfort and, and, and how, how, um, I don't think I'd advocate for this, but you know, if you do see someone littering or not throwing their trash away, um, and you feel comfortable or it's the right situation, address them, address the issue. Um, Mm -hmm. because that, that person, it's not even that they, they know they did something wrong. It's just, you know, if if someone calls them out on them, they'll be embarrassed and they might not do it next time because they don't want to be called out on. Right. Exactly. Or just like too, with like masks, uh, the the non-disposable ones are pretty lightweight. And so they might drop accidentally out of your car when you get out or things like that. So it's just, yeah, having a little more self-awareness. And I know that if that was me, I'd want somebody to point out like, Hey, uh, go get this. And the other thing too, is when you are on the beach, it's beach season right now, uh, depending which beach you're going to, it's windy. We went the other day on Lake Michigan and it was very windy. And I always bring like you mentioned a bag to like pick up a little trash or, and then of course my boys are super into collecting rocks and just things like that. <laughs> but one of them like started to blow away. And it's like, I told, I told my six year old, I'm like, run, go get it. And he's kind of looking at <laughs> yeah. me and of course he listened cause he's a nice guy. But then I explained, you know, it was a learning opportunity there where I could re-explain to him of like why we wouldn't want even though it's really windy and it was really hard to catch why we wouldn't want to let that keep blowing, why we, we brought it to the beach. We need to take it out of the beach and, and just discussing how that could hurt the the habitat of the lake if an animal ingested it and things like that. And so just, yeah, kind of keeping that conversation going and just like you said, being more aware and, you know, raising and even raising the bar a little bit. And that's kind of what we're doing at All Creatures Podcast for Plastic Free July and focusing on our oceans. And that's why we're so glad to have you talking about corals today. So uh, now for our listeners that have stuck with us through this amazing interview and they want to learn more about how to either passively or even more so actively get involved with your organization to help coral reefs and the ocean in general, uh, what are some recommendations you would make and how could they get involved with CRF? Yeah, of course. Um, So a big one this year is a very important election year. Um, And so probably the biggest thing I could say is support eco-conscious, environmentally-friendly green legislation. Um, Whether that's you going out and, and picketing on your corner and holding a sign, whether it's you canvassing for a certain candidate, writing letters to your congressman or mayor or governors, um, or, or the actual act of voting, um, or even donating to someone's campaign or to a certain initiative or, or signing a petition. Um, that's probably the biggest single thing you can do is, is be politically active um, and, and support your views and support the people who support your views. Um, that's if they're for the, the, if they're for the ocean, otherwise forget about it. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, yeah. everyone's entitled to their view. Yeah, um, kind of. No, but really, really, you know, um, identify the, that legislation and the people who are supporting that legislation. That that can go a long way. Um, and and that is everything from supporting funding for research 
to supporting marine parks, um, to supporting funding for removal, debris, um, to supporting coral restoration itself. Um, so that's the big one. Um, in terms of, you know, being involved with CRF themselves, um, I'd really, really love to say you come down and volunteer with us. As of now, we are not actually taking volunteers, of course, because of COVID, um, but hopefully things change and we're going to need lots and lots of volunteers. So whether you want to come out and dive with us, whether you want to come and hang out on land at the warehouse and build some stuff, um, you know, you're coming down here on vacation or you want to plan a vacation down here. I really, really encourage you to. We love meeting everyone. And again, like I said, I can't stress how much our volunteers are, are important to us. Um, and then finally, you know, if you can't do that, um, you can always donate uh, money, donate time, et cetera. Um, yeah. Yes. He, uh, Dan will not promote himself as much as I will. But yes, please, listeners, go to www.coralrestoration.org. We'll put it on our show notes. It's a beautiful site. There's so much information and you can get excited about all their missions as far as restoration and education and science go. It's just, and we don't have time on the podcast to do, do uh, CRF justice. It's just an incredible organization. And uh, when your team granted me the interview, I was like a little kid in a candy shop. I was like, I can't believe I'm talking to these coral heroes. Oh, like you, you guys are coral rock stars. And it's just so so inspirational. And I am just excited once COVID is over or we've moved through it or learned to work with it and live with it, how much more your organization will hopefully grow in the next five to 10 years with the help of, of course, your volunteers and interns. And so, and, and getting that youth or other people excited about corals. So they want to be a marine biologist and a coral ecologist, right? That I don't even know if there was that job 30 years ago or so. And so now there is, and there's just these amazingly brilliant and dedicated scientists and conservationists working, or like you even mentioned engineers, biologists, like this whole amazing uh, computer techs, right? Doing all your co cool programs yeah, and yeah, things absolutely. that you and I don't understand. But yeah, and, and everything. Yeah, I mean, there's so many skill sets that your organization is in need of, and or corals and con ocean conservation in general. So hopefully, people listening to this can tell their friends and get people excited about corals and learn more about them, because it's just really so important for our overall ocean health and for our human health, right? And not only human health, but just in general to protect our waterways from storms and all of that. These these corals are just critical to our ecosystem. And so, Dan, my last question is, if a person, a student, is interested in a career that helps save corals, do you have any advice about how they should undertake that? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I'm actually going to go go right off from something you were saying. Um, it's sort of the plethora of different skill sets that we have in this field, um, if you can even call it one field. Um, you know, majority of my job, not majority, but a lot of parts of my job is diving. But that is only one small aspect of all of this. Um, and so the, probably one of the biggest advices I could say, aside from, you know, act, asking your professors, because they're going to be the ones to help you the most. You know, ask them to help with their research, with their literature searches, if they're collections or if they're caring for animals in tanks. Um, don't ever be afraid to, to 
just put yourself out there. Hey, if you need a hand, I'm here. I'm available. Um, it's probably the biggest, single most biggest thing you can do. But then where I was going with that is really um, try and develop a skill set, something that you're super interested in, whether it's diving, maybe it's not diving. GIS mapping, which is geographic information system, um, is a huge, huge need, not only for coral restoration or coral ecology, but just ecology in general, um, the oil industry. I mean, pretty much anyone needs GIS. Um, and so to have that skill, you know, whether you took a class or it's on your resume or you've dabbled with it, the program um, goes a really, really long way to impressing certain people. Um, like we said, program coding. So there's a lot of ecosystem modeling, which I, I'm awful. <laughs> yeah, it's like a I've foreign tried. language. Yeah, I have a, yeah, it is important. <laughs> I have a modeling friend that I go on evening walks with like once a week and bless her heart. I'm just, she's talking and I'm just, I'm looking at the birds <laughs> and the trees because yep, I don't yeah. know what she's talking about. <laughs> Two of my best friends in grad school went that route for, yeah. for storm modeling and, and flood modeling and I just am totally lost. <laughs> Not my okay. forte. Yeah. As I say, that's okay. There's different strokes for all the different yep. folks and what you like. And so, yeah, it's not necessarily a one size fits all of like, okay, I only have this skill set. This is the one thing I can do. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... Coding, um, you know, I could keep going. Boat handling, um, and then even all the way to, to political advocacy and lobbying, which is something that notoriously scientists don't know how to do. We're so bad at it, Dan. I <laughs> or, know. Are really bad at it. <laughs> Part of me is like, I should just um, run for like something local, just because <laughs> there's no scientists in there barely, you know. And yep. if there's no policy to back science and conservation, a lot of our efforts are going to be not as well received. So definitely there that's a huge way that you can help. Yeah. Uh I I I can't stress that enough. Um and then you know outside of that um definitely recommend staying current with your scientific literature. Um and that just that will impress the right people if you know the latest research that's been in your field um or you know kind of what I've been told um is it's a really good way to, to search for potential graduate opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, they're not going to advertise them in the paper, but a lot of times, you know, this paper will, will come from a PhD candidate out of a professor's lab, and there'll be further research at the end of the paper, et cetera, et cetera. And that would be an opportunity to contact that professor. Hey, this is really cool. This paper was really awesome. I'm really excited. You know, I didn't know this, blah, blah, blah. I thought that you guys doing this was really cool is there any way I can get involved or et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, and so that's like a good way to, to figure out what you want to do specifically um, yeah. and to reach out to those people doing that. Um, and then finally, I would say, um, and this is something that I didn't take advantage of when I was in school, but use the resources that are given to you as a student. So the writing center, if your college has one, um, resume help, workshops, all that kind of stuff um, is something that I kind of glossed over when I was at school and then wish I had taken advantage of. Um, so if you have a cover letter or um, or even just composing an email to, to a professor who you're interested in working with, have someone look at it. Have your, your, your mentor look at it. Have the writing center at your school look at it. Um, it'll never hurt. And it'll always help. And so it just, and that'll always help you grow as, a, as an individual. So yeah. definitely recommend that. Yeah. And most uh, colleges and universities have great resources. And yeah. you yeah, have yeah. to, yeah, get a little bit out of your comfort zone to use them. But once you utilize them, mm -hmm. it can defi definitely help put you a step above of other people and 
and then it'll help you learn and grow, which is, that's the whole reason we do the things we do, right? So, <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Dan, thank you so much for talking with us today at All Creatures Podcast. I have learned so much more about corals and the Coral Restoration Foundation is just incredible. For all of our listeners, we'll put a lot of links on our show notes, but I highly recommend that you check out www.coralrestoration.org. Like them on Facebook. They have a beautiful interactive social media presence that can brighten your day and help you learn more. And then of course, share it with your friends and family to some of this stuff and just get the, it's summertime, just get the conversation going of what are reefs? Why should we care about them? Why should we help save them? Are are they animals? Things like that. And then you can point them in the right direction of this team of scientists and researchers and conservationists at Coral Restoration Foundation that are doing incredible work, not only in Florida, but then internationally. So But a huge shout out to Dan Birdno, the Restoration Program Coordinator. Thank you for being here today and representing CRF. And uh, like I said, I I definitely you're going to be my new uh, my new buddy whenever I have questions about corals. (laughs) So (laughs) you'll be. I welcome them. Yes, it's always like it. It takes a team, man. It takes it's it's a village, right? So it's a lot about what you know, who you know, and who you can and can help help you grow as a scientist and educator. So, and we're both locally in Florida. So, and so when I'm able to travel to the Keys and come get on your boat, I may come help volunteer just to learn more about your awesome organization. And, uh, and I'd, I'd like to get my hands wet one of these days. Yeah. And, and thank you so much for having me. Um, just really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about what we're doing at CRF, talk about a little bit of my life. Um, um, and like we said, we, we want to try and get this information out to as, the largest audience as possible. And this is a really good way to do that. Yeah, well, we appreciate you guys are conservation rock stars, coral heroes, and we need to share it with the world and get everyone excited about them before it's too late. So thank you so much. And we'll definitely be in touch. Of course. Thank you again.